When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have a special guest. This is a returning guest, and I believe he was my first guest I ever had on the podcast, so this is going to be huge. Uh, first time, well, his name's Jim Slagle, Dr. Jim Slagle. First time we talked about his book, The Epistemological Skyhook, which is a hardcover book. And it was crazy expensive, but now it's soft cover, so everyone can go buy that today. I recommend it. It's a fantastic book. But today we're going to be talking about Dr. Segel's new book, The Evolutionary Argument Against Naturalism, The Context, Exposition, and Repercussions. And um, this is uh, an exposition of one of his chapters in the epistemological skyhook, and it's focusing in on planning as Ian. Uh, I hate to say it because it sounds terrible, but I don't know what else to call it his evolutionary argument against naturalism. So without further ado, Jim, thanks so much for coming back on the right. podcast. Thank you. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm really excited about this book. Um, I read most of it and uh, some, some sections I had to skim, but so good, man. It hasn't actually been released yet. So yeah, you've got yeah. your pre-copy. To- <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'm yeah. super special, man. It makes me feel great. What, um, when's the release date? Do you know? Uh, I think it's July 13th or 15th or something like that. Okay. so It's on Amazon.com. It's on Bloomsbury's website, so you can look up when it's – and you can pre-order it. Yeah, you can pre-order it. Okay. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Um, real quick, let's let's repristinate just a tiny bit of our last conversation uh, with Skyhooks. So uh, this is an unfolded chapter from the epistemological Skyhook. Can you help us out? What What is an epistemological Skyhook? Uh, the broadest definition I would use would be – it's any position, any position or, or anything like that that posits a closed circle, but can only be defined or defended or known or understood from a standpoint transcending that circle. Yeah. And the two main foci were uh, determinism and naturalism. The claim is yeah. that determinism uh, is positing a closed system where everything is determined, but it can only be defended if we reject determinism, supposedly. And the same with naturalism, that if naturalism is true, then nature is a closed system, but then we can't, uh, then we don't have a basis for affirming naturalism. Um, and so it's a skyhook because the the outside point from which you're defending it is like this, the sky relative to the system. And it's has to get hooked onto the, uh, onto the system itself in order for it to make sense. So they end up being self-defeating. Yeah. They're positing a closed system, but can only be known if that system is not closed. Yes. I love okay. that. And I got the phrase from Daniel Dennett, who got it, I think from Richard Rorty. So it's not okay. original to me at all. Calling yeah, it the epistemological skyhook is new to me. But. Right. Right. And um, I didn't know that. I, I don't know if I knew it came from Rorty originally, but I, I, every time I see a crane, 
I think of you because I think cranes and skyhooks and uh, yeah. And so, so Dennett, Dennett wants to build from the ground up, but the problem is he has to presuppose a, a skyhook uh, that doesn't come from the ground up, just like you said. And I love what you did. And this is, again, I, we mentioned it last time, but you're creative and this is another reason I like you, but you took this word that he used for ill and you just said, fine, that's our new position. Now I'm going to beat you over the head with it. I'll take that term <laughs> skyhook and let's go with it. Yeah. So I love that. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I say right at the beginning, it's like often the best way to uh, treat, I say, I probably say always, and I shouldn't say always, but <laughs> a lot of times the best way to treat uh, a, a, a word that's being used to try to delegitimize or slur or something like that is just to adopt it and use it to refer to yourself. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, my wife gets, gets gets crazy angry every time I tell people I'm a, a Bible thumping Jesus freak, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I just, like, I'm not offended by it. So go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, man. So, um, what, real quick, what's the first like skyhook that you came across? Was it was it uh, Lewis's miracles? Yeah, yeah, C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Okay. I was. I don't know how I got onto him, but I was. Uh, basically, I spent four years of my life trying to refute Christianity, hmm. and somewhere along the line, someone suggested I read C.S. Lewis, and I encountered his argument there, and I was like, "Oh, crud!" It's, um, <laughs> And so I kind of got into philosophy, and in a sense, I was trying to. When I say this at the beginning of the of epistemological skyhook, I've been trying to refute that argument for like twenty five years, and I just I failed miserably. I cannot do it. I can't refute the argument. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe not particular versions of the argument, but the overall idea behind there is like I can't get around it. Yeah. Well, Jim, I think that's probably part of the reason why you're not. Uh ashamed of, of being called a Bible thumping uh, wingnut or anything like that. Uh, Jesus freak, because yeah, you came in like begrudgingly, like you weren't and, and you're here because it's the truth, you know, you were. And, and so you're like, yeah, this is what, this is what's up. Some of us who grew up in the faith are a little bit more, uh, you know, I'm not, not that I'm judging anybody, but you're just like, Hey, this, I can't say it's wrong. It's right. And so this is what I'll call myself. I love that. Yeah. I should point out that I'm also extremely insecure about pretty much everything. <laughs> so saying that, oh, this is true. It's absolutely true. And I, yeah, I, sure. I, I'm not, I'm not that, I'm not absolutely certain that I exist, for example. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I was going to ask you that earlier or later. Um, <laughs> let's get into that one too. Okay. Um, so, so Jim, so you're uh, the Plantingian skyhook, the evolutionary argument against naturalism is one of the skyhooks in your book. And so then you expanded this out to its own book. Mm -hmm. um, do you have plans to do this with other chapters? Uh, I've been thinking about doing what doing it with Karl Popper's arguments because he's got at least three distinct arguments mm -hmm. and um, skyhook arguments, and I'm I'm thinking about them. I'm partially because I'm not sure if his ultimately are going to be convincing. I mean, his first one is directed at scientific determinism, and he says scientific determinism isn't self defeating it's self-refuting it's it entails a logical contradiction and that's strong so that's claim, a strong yeah. claim and I, I i i need to dig into that i'd love to yeah. to get into that um then he has just a general uh claim he has a is a uh, uh of clocks and clouds he's an essay that's that goes into a general idea here and explaining it but then in other works he expresses the same idea within the context of um his he has three worlds and four functions yeah. of language. That's right. That's right. And he goes into those. And in that context, he presents uh, another skyhook against determinism. So he's got yeah. three different versions. 
The third one is the one I'm least confident about, but that's maybe because I haven't dug into it yet, but it's, I think it's because it seems easy to just say, well, I deny your, that there's the three worlds and the four functions of language. I yeah. just, I just re reject that. Yeah. Um, so I'm not as confident that his will be successful. Um, okay. But I, yeah, I'd like to. Yeah. That's know. popper. I think that's popper function in the skyhook, right? Is that the name of the yeah. chapter? That's yeah. so good. Uh, well, Oh Jim, I, I forgot to, uh, to send you my thesis. Not that you'd care or anything like that, but I, yes. I need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. My bad, man. Uh, because I used your uh, skyhook against theological determinism and you only mentioned it on like a, a page at the end of the book, but it, the page messed with me pretty good. And so I developed <laughs> a, a 150 page, 115 page uh, response to just that. So uh, it was fun, man. It, it made me think uh, really good. good. So I'll send that your way, but let's jump in uh, to the Plantingian skyhook, the Ian, as I've uh, I'm loath to call it, but I have to. Um, what? Yeah, who, who, I, 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 what? I said Plantingian too because that's what everybody else says. But yeah, why? No, no. why isn't Plantingian? Why is that Plantingian? I don't know. I'm not I, sure. Why, why? I don't know. Plantingian you have to be understandable, is, so you have to use the, the crazy people's language. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. understand why. Yeah, I meant more like saying calling it Ian is is what I loathe because it sounds so weird. But um, yeah, I feel you on the Plantingian as well. Um, how would you, you make my name into an adjective? Schlegelian. Well, you know the the German is Schlegel. Schlegel. Schlegelian. Schlegelian. That's yeah. a little bit harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to do it. Someone, some one of the listeners, drop it in the comments. Oh, geez, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> That's right. I don't yeah. want to be an adjective. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which is funny, Jim, because you you're also a very private person, but this book is about to blow up, and uh, that's going to have to leave. So, welcome to the front stage. Welcome to the world, man. You're going to get all these emails, hopefully. Um, so, I don't know if I say I'm a private person. I'm just, you know, I hate other people and they hate me, and everything's. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's not private. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's let's jump in. Jim, who is the target of the Plantingian skyhook? Uh, naturalists. Yeah. Okay. Well, and uh, can can we define? I I know it's tricky, but what what is a natural? What what is naturalism? Yeah, that is tricky. So I'm not going to do it. Uh, naturalism basically is just the idea that nature is all that exists. But then you say, how do you define nature? And um, originally, uh, and I talk about this in the epistemological skyhook. Originally, originally you had materialism. Mm -hmm. um, this is just in the modern era. I'm talking about. Uh, that everything is matter. And then you start saying, well, there's other things that function besides matter. There seems to be forces, you know, like gravity, gravity. So they just said physical physicalism is a very popular term in philosophy and naturalism just says whatever science defines as nature, that's naturalism. Um, but then the thing is that there's no set definition because all of those different ideas have different, I mean, you, you refute one form of naturalism. You're not going to refute another. Yeah. And so, I just follow planning and saying, instead of defining it, um, he's just going to give some of the entailments of naturalism yeah. and how it addresses that. So he's just saying it entails that there's no non-physical element to the human being. There's no soul. There's no mind. There's no uh, supernatural uh, agents like God. There's nothing like that. Mm -hmm. So that's how he defines it. I mean... Because really, when people think of naturalism, they think, well, it's just the denial of supernaturalism. Right. But then what's supernaturalism affirming beyond naturalism? Yeah. So you, you never have this. You have naturalism, which is anti-supernaturalism, but supernaturalism, which is anti-naturalism, which, is, you know, you, you, never, <laughs> you never. Yeah, you never get yeah. into it. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's what I found to be super tricky. Um, okay, yeah. so so that's that's what we're going with. We're following Planning. You can take it up with him if you don't like it. Yeah. Um, I thought we could start with skepticism because you did a you did such a fantastic treatment of Descartes mm-hmm. and uh, his his project with the evil demon, and I think probably in a way that I haven't heard before, which is really sad because I probably should have. Um, but the the interaction between the evil demon and the Kagito was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I wanted to start with skepticism because that's what we're going to be uh, threatening uh, the naturalist with. Mm-hmm. So uh, just real quick, uh, I, I don't actually know how to say this in, in Latin. It's mauvais genie. Do you know how to say that? Mauve, it's not. Yeah. Mauvais genie. genie. It's French. Oh, it's French. Okay. That makes sense. He's French. Yeah. Mauvais yeah. genie. But then the cogito is in Latin, right? Cogito, well, cogito is in Latin. Yeah. But that's because um, the phrase cogito ergo sum was actually doesn't appear in the meditations. Right. He has similar ideas, but he doesn't have that phrase. That phrase comes in, I think it's in Principles of Philosophy. Which was, or, yeah, or medita- or uh, reflect- something on the method. On the method? Reflect- oh, Reflections on the Method. Yeah, yeah, it might be that one. Well, yeah. so so um, a lot of people, most people, most of the listeners are going to know uh, Descartes famous for cogito ergo sum. I think therefore I am. We've done it uh, over and over on the podcast. But mm-hmm. what's interesting that, that you bring up um, is whether or not the cogito evades the evil demon. Or uh, does the evil demon, we just bracket that out to yeah. avoid self-defeat? What, what do you make of that? Well, yeah, what I say is that um, the point of bringing the evil demon into the uh, into the game here is that uh, you're trying to say, just ask, is it possible to deny even basic elementary ideas like 2 plus 3 equals 5? Is that possible? Mm-hmm. And he says, well, if there were an evil demon, yeah it would be possible because two plus three equals five. It's just blatantly obvious, but maybe it's wrong. And the evil demon is just manipulating my brain to make me think it's obvious and I can just see it, but X hypothesis, it's false. And so he says, but at the bottom, I can't deny that I exist because I'm thinking I doubt. Therefore I am right. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I just say that, well, wait a minute, the evil demon, the whole point was that there aren't any therefores you get, you don't get to have a therefore. Mm-hmm. So you can't. Why are you allowed this particular ergo when all the other ergos have been banished by the evil demon? And um, that's that's addressed in the uh, original um, responses to uh, Descartes' meditations. Uh, Antoine Arnold said, yeah. "What? How does that work?" And he just said, and then Descartes said, "I'm putting this framed as an argument just to give you the just to kind of trigger the idea but it's not actually an argument i'm not i mean granted with ergo it's going to sound like it yeah but i'm just saying we immediately intuit this and we can't deny it because if you i mean what do i say in there i say if if i said to descartes i doubt that i exist descartes would say who exactly is it that you think doesn't exist i'd have to say me right i am the one that i think does not exist so in order to doubt my existence i have to affirm it Presuppose mm-hmm. it. That's right. Um, so that's what he's trying to do. So, granted, when it's put in the form of an argument, it can be misleading. But he's he's just saying that he, or at least what he says is, he's not. He's just putting it in that format in order to trigger the intuition. Yeah, I I think I really like that because I love transcendental arguments, which is why you know mm-hmm. I'm I'm so uh, drawn to your book because it's it's very similar. If it's not a negative transcendental argument, it's very similar to one. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's like this. It's it's like you can only uh, disaffirm it on the pains of performative uh, inconsistency, which is to say that it's self-defeating to say that. 
So you can't say that. And, and yeah. I think I, I love it. And I, I've, I've told my listeners before, it's, I think he stole it from Augustine. Augustine said, uh, see Fowler, assume if I'm mistaken, then I exist. And it's the same yeah. kind of thing, right? It's yeah. If, if, uh, Augustine was arguing against the academicians who, uh, is, you know, Plato's uh, heirs and they became skeptics and Plato's rolling in his grave. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Augustine, you know, goes against them and, and Descartes just kind of grabs that and goes, well, fine. Yeah. If I doubt, uh, then I exist. Do you, I don't, I don't know if he did that intentionally, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, maybe he I, did. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I don't know about footnotes back then, right? Maybe he didn't, maybe that wasn't uh, as rigorous of a thing, yeah. but do you think, do you think the cogito works? Cause, cause you're, I, I think you'd probably hold more to, to planning as epistemology if I'm not mistaken, wouldn't you? Uh, uh, I don't agree with planning as epistemology. Whoa. Um, all right. Man. I'm not a naturalized epistemologist. Dude. Um, I think he's got some stuff going on. Yeah. that I strongly agree with, but any kind of naturalized epistemology, I think is just too far. It goes way, it just goes too far Yeah, because it's descriptive. And like I say, planning a kind of, where do we get the normativity from? There's no normativity. So planning, it says, well, there's God and yep. God gives the normativity. He's like, okay, but there's normativity involved in my individual thinking. Yeah. So and if you're a cow, if you're a hardcore five point looking for a sixth and seventh point Calvinist. <laughs> yeah then maybe you can embrace this this naturalized epistemology. But I'm yeah. not a Calvinist at all, so I, I can't. Well, it's like, I think last time you asked me if I'm an externalist or an internalist, yeah. and I said, well, you got to have both, right? right? Right. There's some things where you need it and some things where, where you need to know that you know something, and sometimes you don't. Yeah. And um, and I don't think planning really disagrees with that. It's just that I, I don't think with naturalized epistemology, you're going to be able to to get that. Yeah, this this kind of gets down to your your question about can we have um, theistic determinism? Mm-hmm. Because the question is if it's just something that's being done to me, if it's happening to me, if there's no agency at all involved on my account, then how do I even believe anything? Yeah, the concept of belief seems to involve my um, affirmation that I recognize something as true and so accepted. Right, right, because well, I receive information that I don't accept. Right, 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 and so, yeah. We, and- you well, you yeah. made a really. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to to evolutionary argument, but this is so good because you made you made this really helpful clarification in the epistemological skyhook that it, you need an explanation for your belief, and you say explanation because instead of reason, because you're trying to avoid, you're trying to hit both internalists and externalists. Yeah, right. And yeah. so you say explanation instead of reason because maybe you know reason's responsiveness is too internalistic or something like that. So you say there's got to be an explanation, but it has to be a good explanation, and it has to be your explanation. And if it's not your explanation, then it's someone else's. And this is where I saw the the, the implications for exter- uh, for theological determinism is if it's God's explanation, ultimately, then uh, God's responsible for that belief. And if I'm acting on that belief, then he uh, acquires all the culpability, whether it's good or bad. And so all the evil that I've done now collapses down into God and he it's his fault. And so that, that was what I was trying to defend against. And I, I ended up going with... Um, a reasons responsive uh, kind of kind of view that God determines, but He determines, and I and I borrow from, um, or I, I defend Kevin Van Hooser's model of uh, dialogical determinism that God determines by dialoguing with us and presenting us reasons, and so He knows what would what it would take for me to understand this. He gives us illumination and persuasion. Yeah, I wouldn't so we, call that determinism, though. Well, He's determining uh, my beliefs. Still, He knows that I will believe a. Uh, at at time t, 
because he knows what it, what it would take to persuade me to that. So I'm still determined to believe this. I can't do otherwise, but he's going through my va- rational faculties. Well, I could do otherwise. If God presented me with something else, then mm. that's what it would happen. So I, so could, it's like so a, I, don't, I don't think that would be determinism. God's accommodating what he presents to me based on what I would choose to do. Yeah, but so I don't think that's determinism. Okay. You're determined to believe it though, right? So you're determined to believe A at time T, you can't do otherwise unless God presented you something other uh, else. Well, I'm determined. Are you talking about just logical determinism that A, I'm determined to believe A at times T, regardless of whether God, God whether no, God no. exists or not, just a million years ago. No, it was so true that I would believe A. At I, I wouldn't T. go with that. I think that falls to your, I think, um, that type of determinism falls to your criteria and it's, well, then I'm not responsible. It's not really my belief at all. Oh. So free will and my uh, epistemic warrant go out the window unless mm. it's through my, it has to be my reasons. It has to be yeah. you know reasons responsive. And I have to have mechanism ownership. I, he can't, he can't evade and go through and manipulate me. It's gotta be presented to me. And, and um, so, yeah, it's a whole thing. I'll send you the thing. Maybe we could talk about it, send again, it to but, me. Yes. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> Um, okay, so so getting back to we, we were talking about Descartes a little bit. We're talking about internalism, externalism, and we, uh, I love what you say that we that we kind of need both here. Descartes um, was kind of was he the father of internalism? You'd say, or, or what do you think? Uh, no, there were internalists before him, but okay. it's kind of uh, I wouldn't say he's the 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 father of it, but he's uh, the favorite son. Okay. <laughs> he's the, he's the one that basically got, made it. You know, he made internalism cool again. I would say. Okay. Yeah. Um, just to stick to, to finish up with with the skeptical part here. Uh, do you think so? Descartes brought on his ontological argument, I, I think, to try and refute the uh, evil demon. Mm-hmm. Uh, demon. Does that does that work? Do, do you are you persuaded by that? Do you think it? Uh, is, no, no I don't think his ontological argument works. Okay. Um, but regardless, even if it did, I don't think it would refute the evil demon. Because um, unless we're pausing the evil demon as a uh, perfect being, except imperfect in the sense of morality and being right. evil, unless we're in, in that case, there would be two gods that share all the same attributes but are distinct mm-hmm. and they conflict with each other. It's difficult to make sense of that. In fact, yeah. if you have two all powerful beings that are different, they're going to, they're, they're, intentions are going to conflict and so when one's going to have to bow, uh, be overruled by the other in which case the first one isn't all powerful yeah um so that in that sense it would it would prove it if he's pausing the evil demon as all powerful yeah but he doesn't have to be taken that way he could be just it's it's an incredibly powerful demon or spiritual force that's devoted itself to making me think two plus three equals five when it doesn't yeah um and does the existence of God go against that? Well, not only does it not go against that, I mean, Christianity tells us there's something like that already with the, with the idea that there's a Satan who's uh, uh, the uh, Lord of the current Lord of the air, and he's blinded the, the eyes of many. Yeah, father of lies. Yeah. Yeah. If I, so it sounds like the evil demon is actually here. Yeah, he's not all powerful, but he's very powerful, yeah. Yeah, and then the question becomes, um, can the argument survive that? Because one of the objections to uh, the E-A-A-N, that's how you say it, by the way, (laughs) the initials, (laughs) E-A-A-N. It's so long. It's such a mouthful. 
Yeah. You know, just say planting a skyhook. That's yeah, easier. that's better. Um, <laughs> one of the objections is that you can pre- uh, create a two quoque argument against theism or Christianity in particular. And uh, so that becomes the question. If, if God has created a being like Satan, who is not only what Christians have traditionally thought he is, but is able to um, basically play the same kind of role in, as naturalism plays for the naturalist, then can we avoid this talk of uh, naturalism being defeated, but theism is not. And so the the 11th chapter, a large portion of it is responding to those two quoque arguments. Yeah. Um, trying to say that it doesn't, although I don't really bring Satan into it, but you know. yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. So for, for the audience who don't, who don't know uh, what two quoque is, it's, uh, and to you also, it's like, uh, you know, yeah, it may be a problem for me, but, but what about you? It's what about ism? Like you, you got a problem too. It's what about ism? Yeah. Which is what, what about ism? First, first of all, if you've already got a cool Latin name for something, don't make up something that sounds stupid. Yeah. It's just called, that's just the same thing. That's right. But second of all, sometimes it's a fallacy. Sometimes it's not. It right. depends. Right. right? Yeah, it depends on the situation and how it's being used, and sometimes it's appropriate to use that, and it's not an informal fallacy. Sometimes the reason people are bringing it up is like, well, you know, you believed it was bad when X did it, but you don't believe it's bad when Y does it. Right. Like, well, that's just what about it. It's like, no, I'm changing the subject to whether you're a hypocrite. Yeah. I get to do yeah, that. Right. Yeah, and it's it's similar <laughs> to like, a, like an ad hominem where it's like yeah. sometimes that's an important thing to point out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rhetorically, or or even yeah, argumentative, argumentatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's. I want to go. Um, that's awesome. I love the Descartes stuff. It, it blows my mind. You mentioned in a podcast a couple years back that you were you're you're toying with the idea of building an epistemology up from like a skyhook or like from from uh, Descartes kind of cogito. I'm waiting for it, man. I'm I'm ready for it. It'll be so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be. I wouldn't be building it up. I would be reverse engineering it. Yeah, that, that's right. That's because right. that's what it would have to do. Bill, Descartes, the reason he failed is because he's trying to, well, right. I don't need to get into that. But it's like reverse foundation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, I want to go with uh, with local skepticism. So we, we kind of mm-hmm. got this idea of, of like global skepticism. If there's this uh, this powerful or, or all-powerful evil genie, evil demon. So uh, local skepticisms are aimed at certain types of beliefs, like metaphysical beliefs, ethical beliefs. Um, metaphysical beliefs is interesting. I, I just had a, a podcast episode uh, with Tom Crisp and Tyler McNabb on that, but I, you brought up ethical beliefs and I was so fired up because you bring up Sharon Street's moral uh, E-A-A-N, right? Like it's, she wouldn't call it that, but um, Tom Nagel does and, or he, he might allude to it. Can you, can you lay that out for us? Do you have that on top of your mind? Um, basically her idea, as I understand it, is that, and, She's not using it as an argument against naturalism, actually. Right, right. But she just she's use she's arguing against moral realism. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says that um, if uh, even if there were a, a, a world of of uh, moral truths, there's no reason to think that the evolutionary process would ever come in contact with it. Yeah, and even so, there's no reason to think that there's this realm of moral, moral truth. So there's no reason to think that our beliefs. Our moral beliefs are anything more than what's hardwired into us through the evolutionary process for our, for our own survival and don't point to any uh, objective moral truths. Yeah. Um, and that's partially the claim is because of normativity. Yeah. Normativity is basically shouldness. Yep. Right. Oughtness. Mm-hmm. It's what you should or, or shouldn't do, which is blatantly 
uh, is most blatant in ethics, right? Yeah. But she points out that normativity isn't just in ethics. I mean, it's in value studies. So you got ethics, you have political philosophy, you have aesthetics, but it's also in epistemology in general, because a lot of epistemologists who aren't naturalized epistemologists say that uh, knowledge is intrinsically uh, normative. So Mm -hmm. you can't erase the normativity. Um, So if there's, but the whole idea is you can't have, you can't get an ought from an is. And if all there is, is is, is, Mm -hmm. then you can't get to an ought. And so she says that you can't have these, um, this norm, these normative uh, reasons. But where she cuts the line is where she says, "With uh, you can't have normative reasoning either." So you, but so you can't trust those conclusions. But you can have uh, just immediate uh, sensory beliefs because those aren't formed. At least they're not obviously formed. And there's people who contest this. Donald mm-hmm. Davidson would contest this. Yeah, Taiwan Kim would contest this. Mm-hmm. But um, that forming a belief is not intrinsically normative. So it allows for the truth of our sensory beliefs. And then presumably you could try to use that to build up from our sensory beliefs being reliable to our scientific beliefs being reliable to naturalism being a reasonable position. Yeah. Right. So that's. It's yeah. just like raw, just pure empiricism, right? Your, your perceptual beliefs are safe. And I, yeah, I, I love her argument. I, I first came across it in uh, Thomas Nagel's uh, Mind and Cosmos. Right. He calls and, it, uh, what is he saying there? He says, moral beliefs are a wheel that turns without being attached to anything. Yeah. Or moral, yeah, an objective realm of, of, of morality would be a wheel that doesn't, spinning that doesn't attach to anything. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's it's great because she's actually on the other side. So so Thomas Nagel goes well, uh, you know they're on the other side. Thomas Nagel wants to say, well, there are moral. Uh, I'm a moral realist, and she's saying mm-hmm. she's cutting this tie between Darwinistic evolution or that that type of naturalism and normative uh, moral beliefs, moral realism. And she's saying, well, that means we need to give that up. And Nagel goes, well, I'm not giving that up. I'll rather give up naturalistic uh, evolutionary. Uh, theory than than yeah. moral realism. I can't give that up. So it kind of depends on where you're at with your priors. Yeah. But I, I think I, Louise I, Anthony said that too. Louise okay. Anthony said any any argument against the objectivity of uh, against moral realism mm-hmm. uh, will will have to proceed by premises that are less plausible than moral realism itself. So it, yeah. At any point, it's just going to be more plausible to just accept moral realism. Right. Yeah, I love that. I think Lewis makes a, a, a pretty good point of that in in uh, mere Christianity because you bump into somebody and now you have this problem of, of morality. What what ought I do? Should I apologize? Should they apologize beyond mere convention? I also mm-hmm. think uh, – so I used this argument because I think there's a normativity to knowledge, and I know that that triggers a lot of people, but I think, I think you're – on board with this, I think we've talked about this before, where there's a, a between the two premises and the conclusion, or however many premises in the conclusion, there's an ought that, like, you ought to affirm this occlu- uh, this conclusion if you find yeah. the premises uh, sound, if they're Logical true. Or yes, that's yeah. a thing. And so, if you think that, then yeah, uh, we, we talked about Sharon Street last time, and it, it seems like it might be self defeating. It might be, and I need to develop more, it more. But to give an argument and then cut off that ethical normative uh, link in the argument between the premises and the conclusion. It's like, well, then I don't have to believe your conclusion at all, but you know, I have to, you know, that I have to like, 
your position is refuting your position, um, perhaps, or or self self self-defying or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you've you've taught me to be careful with uh, self defeat and self refutation. Yeah. Uh, I think. Do you have a paper by that name? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Self defeat, self refutation, and self defeat. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Et Annalise. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll send I, it to you. I already have it. You already sent it to me. I love it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, there you yeah. go. It's been helpful. Um, <laughs> so, oh, so that's that's um, local skepticisms, but we got global skepticism as well, which would be targeting all of our beliefs or all the beliefs produced by our cognitive faculties. And I'm wondering, um, is is planning a skyhook? Is it a global threat? Should it should it be a global threat? What do you think? Well, you can take it either way. I mean, some I ar- I argue for it as as a global skeptical claim, mm-hmm. but I also deal with there's some people who say no, we shouldn't do that because. Um, but I mean, a lot of the reasons for not wanting to do that are not uh, philosophical reasons. They're just because it's it's not people aren't going to listen to you if you yeah. make it a global skeptical claim, right? Right. Um, so people say we should be skeptical of um, metaphysical beliefs or normative reasons or uh, scientific beliefs. That's an interesting one. That's Popper, right? right? That would that would be Popper. What you just uh, laid out for us earlier? Would he do that? I think he. Well, he said he said scientific determinism was determinism. Right. Okay. okay. But uh, William Talbot argues. That's right. That it's science, and then there was a couple. Uh, I forget their names. A couple of guys whose names last names both begin with G had an article like a year ago, where they said something similar to Talbot, where they argued that um, you need a very specific kind of moral realism in order for scientific inference or or uh, inference of the best explanation to take place. Yeah, and that's inconsistent with with uh, naturalism. Yeah, totally. So they basically are. So they say it. it it takes away your belief for evolution, which takes away any justification in believing in naturalism. Mm-hmm. And they see it as a variation on planning us. Okay. Um, William Talbot has something, uh, has argued something similar and bigger than that, but he, he sees his as a distinct argument from planning us. He's a critic of planning his argument. Yeah, right. That's what was confusing when I read, when I was reading your book, because uh, he's, he's one of the critics. I think he's in naturalism defeated, right? Is that, is yeah, he- yeah, yeah. And and he he says um, evolutionary forces would only select for local conditions, not global conditions. Right. And so yeah, you kind of end up with this kind of global skepticism because there's no reason to think that we should be able to reason about the world, you know, the, right. the whole world, including abstract and stuff. Yeah. If, if evolutionary theory, I thought that was really interesting. Right. Now he he posits that there are these metaphysically necessary truths that link the present, the, the local environment to cosmic absolute truth oh, okay. so that we can do that. Okay. Um, and I, I, I refer, I call that quasi, no, uh, what did I say? Quasi Platonism or something like that. Yeah. And he was like, eh, he didn't like that. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see it as quasi Platonism. I mean, yeah. or quasi formal causes, you know? Right. But I, I said, well, just, you know, don't you don't have to take them that way. Just I mean, they're there's they sound like formal causes in some sense. And mm-hmm. the fact that they're different in many other senses, that's fine. I'm just saying that in a few important regards, they're like formal causality. Yeah. Right. These necessary truths that are like they're not causing. They're not right. like the efficient they're causes. inert. Yeah. Right. They're like yeah. the principles by which these things are reflected or something like that. Yeah. Or they're like aimed at those or something. Yeah, that's yeah, weird. Read his, read his articles. He's the guy. 
it's it's people like it's people like William Talbot who make you realize how little you've accomplished in life. I mean, he's just he's just scary smart. Yeah, right? yeah. Some of these dudes are, are freaky, freaky smart. Well, so so you you think that we should uh, we should maximize it and make make it a global threat? That the planning's argument ought ought to be that way. Well, I mean, the, it there's there, there's pros and cons of both sides, right? Okay. If you just make it a local thing that that um, that uh, applies to naturalism, but it's just a local skepticism, mm-hmm. people are going to be more willing to listen to you. But then part part of the reason they're going to be do that do that is because there's a bunch of other stuff that isn't being addressed, and they think maybe if we explore this, we can shore up the problems and bring it back. Yeah. If it's global then you can't do that. There's nothing outside that you can bring in to do it. It's global. Right. Yeah. But then as soon as you say that, people's heads start exploding. There's yeah. How near, you know, so it's, it's, if you're, the concern is, is what kind of effect it will have, not yeah. whether it's valid. I think the whole problem with uh, naturalism is um, belief content. And that's something that would apply across the board to all beliefs, right. regardless. So, mm-hmm. Well, and I like that. It's a, it's um, I I get I catch the the metaphysical version. I'm still kind of debating because I'm working on one myself, and and I I like that because of what you said, the kind of rhetorical effect. But it doesn't have the panache of saying like, and you can't believe what you believe about your dog either. You know, your precious precious dog. Well, sorry, man, that's out because yeah. we got if if naturalism and evolution or naturalistic evolution, then all your beliefs are gone, including that one, and then you got this full circle. Um, yeah, snake biting its tail type thing. Yeah. Well, the problem, it, it would just say that uh, your beliefs would still be true. It's just that you have another belief that makes a defeater for every other belief you have. Right. So it's so like, uh, it's like if I, if I believed uh, my dog is cute and also that there are no rational beliefs anywhere. No one has any rational beliefs. Then that would challenge my belief that my dog is cute. Right. Well, yeah, there you go. And I've I've heard people they some people maybe they don't get it, maybe I'm not understanding them, but they're like, no, that's just something that seems right to me. It's a seeming. It's like I think it is right. I think you are probably right. So that means you should let go of of N and E because if N and E, then you're not right here. So yeah, if it seems right to you, then go ahead and let go of N and E. That's what you need to do. That's why it's a global skeptical threat. It's it's threatening you. So you let go of the thing that's doing the threatening. Otherwise, you get global skepticism. Yeah, I say in the book, I say that, look, if if uh, if theism entailed something like the uh, the evil demon argument, mm-hmm. evil demon type of skepticism, if you could show that any form of theism just entails that, the response shouldn't just be, well, that's outrageous. That's crazy to think that there's an evil demon who does that. Right. The response should also be, well, if theism entails that, reject theism. Right. Reject what leads to the crazy situation. Exactly. So that's the idea with naturalism. It's, it's, it leads to this situation, so therefore you should reject what leads to it. Yeah. And of course, when people, this is part of my interaction with with William Talbot, that um, when people hear that, this and they, they say there's an inconsistency there, they're not going to just reject the argument or reject their belief in naturalism. They're going to put the argument on the side and start exploring and finding a way to get around it. So they're going to bracket it yeah. and keep thinking. Right. It's like mm-hmm. there should be admired in skepticism. Well, they're not. They're going to bracket it and keep reasoning and then try to figure out if there's another way out. If they keep leading back to it, eventually they're going to say, hey, all roads lead to crap. Maybe I should just not 
go the other way. Right. That's the idea. I I'm love sorry, that. I crap. I no, that's, you can say crap. I, yeah, it's fine. Uh, I think that's what, what actually happens. I, that's why I love, I love um, like negative transcendental arguments. I love uh, skeptical threats. I love kind of, yeah, skepticism because it's so fun. It's not like, a, it's not a full blown, uh, it's not always like a full blown uh, reductio ad absurdum. It's more mm-hmm. like, it's more like a reductio ad absurdum, like down the road. You're like, Hey, if you keep going this route, you don't have anything left. So stop going this route. Mm-hmm. That's why it's a threat. I, I, I love that. Those are so much more fun to me. You can come up with a contradiction. That's great, but I, you know, I just haven't been able to pull one out yet. <laughs> uh, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about naturalized epistemology, just kind of the, the background. Sure. What, what does that mean, um, and where does it come from? Um, it comes from Quine. I mean, there were things going on before that. Evolutionary epistemology was already not under that name, but it was already going on in the late 19th century. I mean, mm-hmm. as soon as Darwin published on the origin of species, people were saying, well, let's apply that to human beings and to the human mind, you know? Right. Uh, in fact, in the epistemological skyhook, I, I, I have uh, a few pages on Arthur Balfour. My guy. Who wrote an essay on that issue saying there's a problem applying this Darwinian survival of the fittest to the mind mm-hmm. uh, within 20 years of the publication of On the Origin of Species, right? Yeah. Fantastic. So you had evolutionary epistemology going on for a while, and then it 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 kind of you had um, there are other it, that was going on, but in the late '60s you had uh, Willard Van Orman Quine mm-hmm. come up with naturalized epistemology, where he says, "Let's just build our theory of knowledge based entirely on what's available to us in the sciences, and nothing more. Don't bring anything in that's not from the sciences." Mm-hmm. And um, when he first presented it, he didn't explicitly say, therefore, no normativity, mm-hmm. but he doesn't address normativity. And then one of the immediate objections is, well, where's the normativity? Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he basically says, why don't we just settle for psychology, descriptive yeah. psychology? Right. Um, and um, everyone, including Quine, later Quine said, yeah, you can't, you can't really get rid of normativity Mm -hmm. um that way i mean planning points out first of all that science uh, not the hard sciences like physics and chemistry but once you get into the life sciences there's normativity everywhere yeah right there's teleology everywhere right right and um the issue with evolution is just that with evolution that was the paradigm of why we need teleology and then they showed a way for it to work without teleology they said, they said okay well that was the hardest case so therefore everything else is going to fall on the line right well with science often it, it doesn't <laughs> that often happens the things you thought were going to be hardest end up being easy and the things you thought were going to be easy end up being hard they thought the origin of life was easy right spontaneous generation happens all the time mm-hmm. and that just turned out to be just a, insanely difficult yeah so it just because sometimes the easy that hard things turn out to be easy doesn't mean that that's the only direction things go in i'm sorry i'm going off on a tangent here that's good it's gold (laughs) but um so Quine said uh, let's just base everything off off of science and um planning up points out that well even descriptive psychology is just rife with normativity yeah so you're going to have normativity And, and Quine says yeah you do you do need normativity um, and then that gets into a deeper issue with whether you can get by with just a technical normativity or a technical a hypothetical imperatives. Yeah. 
And I argue in both books, I argue that you can't, for knowledge, it cannot be a hypothetical imperative. It has to be a categorical imperative. And whether that's consistent with naturalism is, well, doesn't seem to be. So knowledge yeah. requires a categorical instead of a hypothetical imperative. What would what would the hypothetical? I'm sure, depending on the person, the thinker, uh, they, would, yeah. they would pick different ones. But what what's like a good example of a hypothetical that someone would give? Well, in general, it would be like if you want to accomplish this goal, then you should do this. Ah, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. hypothetical. But because yeah. you can get around it by saying, okay, I'm not going to pursue that goal. But yeah, if the goal is rationality. You can say, I want to pursue rationality. Should engage in this. Oh well, I just reject that goal. Yeah. You can't reject that goal because the idea is that you can rationally re- you can reject that goal and still be rational. You're not pursuing the means to that end mm-hmm. because you're you can rationally not have to pursue that end. Yeah. But you can't rationally refrain from pursuing rationality. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Skyhook. Boom. So that's yeah. like so just just for for those who might be lost with the hypothetical language. So if uh, like uh, a hypothetical imperative would be like if you want a happy marriage, then you shouldn't beat your wife. If if you don't want if you don't yeah if you don't want to have marital strife don't beat your wife but uh, a um, there's hypothetical and then uh, categorical a categorical imperative would be never beat your wife it's it's wrong to beat your wife what the heck and so yeah that that's helpful so with the the naturalist would attempt a categorical uh, a hypothetical imperative um, when when really what you need is a, a categorical and categorical is one you can't really escape. Even because yeah. our thinking, you know, presupposes this categorical. Yeah, that that's so good, man. I love that. I would also point out that there's slightly more to marriage than a happy marriage <laughs> than not beating your wife. That's great. Yeah, that it's it's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty low down there. Just, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more to it. That's good. Um, so I pulled this this great quote from Peter Geech. I think it's Geech. Geech. Yeah. So uh, he says, "When we hear of someone married, married to Elizabeth Anscombe." Oh yeah, he's the husband of Elizabeth Anscombe. That's why I know that name. He yeah. he sided with Lewis on the on the argument from. Reason. I hear that, but I'm not sure if he. I, I, that's that's just rumor. Okay, okay. I think Victor Reppert said that, but he specifically said that that's that's a rumor that he did. Okay. That. I, a, I'd have to. That's a rumor I'm willing to propagate here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let's okay. start urban legends. It's yeah. fun. That's right. Just keep it going. That's all that matters. So Peter Geach says, when we hear of some new attempt to explain reasoning or language or choice naturalistically, we ought to reject, we ought to react as if we were told someone had squared the circle or proved square root of two to be rational. Only the mildest curiosity is in order. How well has the fallacy been concealed? I love yeah. that. It's, it's, it's I, so I mean, I, I use that as a, uh, as an epigraph, mm-hmm. the planning is chapter actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those epigraphs might might alone be worth the uh, the the two books. I love those. Do you like yeah. the epigraphs in the new book too? So good. I I grabbed this one from the new book. I think you maybe maybe oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just you should. I have I have in the last book I had my my favorite epigraphs were the ones for the chapter on eliminative materialism. In the new one, yeah. my favorite epigraphs are the ones from the chapter on eliminative materialism. <laughs> I Dude, have I, I have noticed. I have noticed that you take particular aims to just destroy eliminative materialism. I fear that means I'm insecure about it, but I, I really, that, that's just, I'm not confident about hardly anything, but I, it's, that's something that I just can't make my mind do it. You know? Right. Right. I can't, it, it's, it's like, I can't, I mean, C.S. Lewis had the analogy of trying to pour 
wine into the the cavity at the bottom of the bottle you're pouring from it's like i can't get my mind to do that i can't right. do it so um can you can you tell the audience like what what is eliminative materialism well it's eliminative because it says that the things that we ascribe to mind uh are wrong they're not to be explained to something else they're actually they don't exist mm-hmm. uh they describe like so like beliefs chains of reasoning uh norms i mean all these things are just all all there is is the physical processes neural processes of the brain that's all there is and uh so beliefs don't exist no one's ever had a belief no one ever will it's impossible because they can't fit it in within the confines of naturalism right um so that's um they can't fit it in so they say there can't be any to them, suggest, I guess they 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 take that beliefs would be supernatural evidence. Just the fact that there are beliefs would be evidence of supernatural. Yeah. Um, and then when you apply the skyhook to them, you end up saying, "Okay, but you're asserting all these things." They go, "Well, we don't believe them though, because there aren't any beliefs." It's like, okay, then what are you saying? In order for me to make sense of what you're saying, I have to know what you're saying. So, right. and so that's the point. I mean, it, they it basically takes away. Their presentation, their, their thesis takes away any reason I have for understanding the arguments for and the definition of eliminativism in the first place. Right. It's just an empty concept that I cannot, that there's nothing to unravel there. And there might not even be concepts at all anyways. So. Well, there aren't <laughs> concepts. Yeah. Right. Right. Sorry. They say there aren't concepts. Right. So it's, it's like a really, really strong case of kicking Wittgenstein's ladder away. Hey, you yeah. know, you got up here to believe me and now just the world is completely changed and yeah they just i mean i say in the in the book i say it's just too bad that the structure they climbed up to onto was made out of shaving cream (laughs) yeah right yeah uh van till has a line about that it's like uh it's trying to trying to it's like a man made of water trying to escape the ocean on a ladder made of water and it's just (laughs) like it's not happening what are you talking about i i love i think you also have a paper maybe uh called yes eliminative materialism is self-defeating yeah, yeah. That's another. It's just. It's great. I love that you uh, believe those guys. Um, okay. So, so we got we got naturalized epistemology. Planninga is. I I didn't know this until I heard you on a podcast a couple years back. Like, pl- part of Planninga's genius is that he's couching his uh, epistemology as a naturalized epistemology, and then he brings mm-hmm. in like the skyhook to kick off all the all the naturalists. Right. Yeah. Um. Do you? Do you think it's successful? Like, is it is net is um, proper functionalism like a a successful theory? Because because again, you you mentioned we need some internalism. Yeah. What do we make of it? Yeah. Well, proper functionalism is just what plant. That's basically planning as a version of normativity. It needs something that's normative and proper functioning that you're because you should oh, right, function right. properly. Yeah. So uh, he kind of takes it out of the realm of intent of being intentionally doing it. That's why he he kind of disperses it or puts it in the hands of God and said, God set right. us up with these functions that we follow. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a normative thing. And if you try to, and it, he addresses in the uh, penultimate chapter in um, warrant to proper function before he gives the EAAN, he yeah. has this chapter on, can we get rid of proper function? And ultimately it would be saying, can we get rid of any kind of normativity in thinking? And he's, and he just says that, um, none of the attempts to do so have 
are successful. Basically, you can't have functionality within naturalism. And if you can just, if you look at it as a sort of a fictionalism, right? Like, mm-hmm. like uh, imaginary numbers or, or whatever. Um, can we look at functions that way? It's like, well, I guess you could, but then there's no real. First of all, that doesn't refute the argument at all, because the argument just says if you don't have any functions, then that's just in the position where you don't have any reason to trust your beliefs. Right. Right. So it doesn't affect the argument one way or the other. But what would be the argument for not for thinking that functions don't really exist? And it's like, as far as I can tell, the argument is I really, really want naturalism to be true. Yeah. Therefore, functions don't exist, which is, I think, Nietzsche's argument against God. Right. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. God existed. I couldn't stand not being him. Therefore there is no God. (laughs) Yeah, man. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Um, Well, I I thought we could, we could finish up here by looking at uh, the final form of planning as argument. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm spacing, I'm spacing on the name of the book. Um, Oh, where the conflict uh, really lies. lies, Yeah. And and that is, do you think that's his official? Like, this is it. This is the the best one. Well, he calls it official. (laughs) Yeah. Although he does say he hopes it's the last version. So I haven't, yeah. I haven't seen him develop it further beyond this. So. Okay. Well, so I have it, I have it here. Um, I'll probably drop it in the comments or something like that on YouTube or maybe uh, on anchor as well. But so I'll just go through the premise, the premises. And I think the, the most important ones to kind of motivate would be uh, premise one and two. So, um, so the probability of our, our rational faculties being uh, reliable mm-hmm. uh, on naturalism and evolution is low. That's premise one. Premise two, anyone who accepts or believes naturalism and evolution and sees that the probability of our rational faculties being reliable on naturalism and evolution is low. They have a defeater for our, the reliability of our cognitive faculties. So if, if, you accept, uh, if you accept naturalistic evolution or naturalism and evolution, and you see, premise one, that the probability of our rational faculties is low on naturalism and evolution... Then you have a defeater for uh, your, the reliability of your cognitive faculties. I'm using different words. I'm sorry, folks. Uh, I'm botching this. But, but then three, anyone who has a defeater for the rational faculties has a defeater for, for the reliability of our rational faculties, has a defeater for any belief she thinks she has, including naturalism and evolution itself. For if one who accepts naturalism and evolution thereby acquires a defeater for naturalism and evolution – Naturalism and evolution is self-defeating and can't rationally be accepted. Conclusion, naturalism and evolution can't rationally be accepted. Mm-hmm. So um, I love this argument. I think it's fantastic. But how do we motivate uh, one and two, that um, the, the probability of our rational faculties being reliable on ev- naturalism and evolution is low? Like, wh- wh- What motivates that? Um. For planning or for me, I mean, the, yeah, either way, yeah. The, the justification I come to that is the difficulty of there being uh, propositional content to our mm-hmm. beliefs on naturalism. So I, uh, I have the belief um, that um, what's the one I give in the book that the state of Oregon is larger than the United Kingdom. Oh yeah, right? okay. That's a belief, and it has propositional content. Namely, it has as its content the proposition the state of Oregon is larger than the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but how can just a physical object have propositional content? Right. It's not clear. And planning, it just says that this is, uh, it's 
a category mistake. It's a category error to say that it's possible. Yeah. We just don't have propositional content. And, um, and this is where Richard Taylor's argument that he re- references comes in. Yeah. Taylor says that if uh, you see on you're in a train, you look out the window and you see uh, spelled out in white rocks in a hillside, British Railways reco- uh, welcomes you to Wales. Mm-hmm. Says, okay, now there's two salute. There's two possibilities: either someone intentionally put them there to communicate that message, or it just happened by chance, like the sun and the wind and the rain bleached the rocks. They rolled down into that configuration by chance. Mm-hmm. He says that's possible. And now ignoring which one is more plausible than not. His point is that if I accept the second explanation that there was just an accident, then I no longer have any basis for thinking that those rocks do communicate that message. Exactly. It's just that it fell into a configuration that I would ascribe propositional content to if mm-hmm. it had been made by an intelligent being. Right. But since by by the the position is that they weren't there by a, by an intelligent being, I have no basis for accepting the claim. Yeah. Um, with naturalism. If beliefs, propositional content, beliefs with propositional content arose, there wouldn't be a control over the content of the beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, evolution, part of the objection would be that evolution, it wouldn't that not that it would select belief, but that it would select reliable belief forming processes. Mm -hmm. Right. But um, this is the distinction that planning makes. And I really go to town on between indicators and yes and predictors. I was hoping we could get into that. Yeah. Yeah. The indicators indicate something. So you have all kinds of indicators all throughout your body that uh, tell your body the that respond to external circumstances or internal circumstances or whatever. Um like we have indicators for saline content in our blood, things like this. Mm-hmm. But uh, a depictor would be something that depicts situation which would be depicting mean it would have propositional content Mm -hmm. and evolution would certainly uh select indicators reliable indicators but there's no reason to think it would select reliable depictors because the depictor and the indicator can be about completely different things yeah right like the indicator says that uh look out there's a uh an approaching tiger off to the right there about 10 yards away mm-hmm. and the depictor says my soup is cold right it has nothing to do with it there's no reason to think there'd be a connection there yeah and then there the counter response um which is covered by uh, richard ott otty i'm not sure i pronounce his last name o-t-t-e mm-hmm. he said we don't experience our brains being completely incoherent like that every indicator has a completely ir- irrelevant depictor or belief associated with it so that would just mean that our depictors aren't uh arranged haphazardly but they seem to be coherent at least yeah that they appear to be coherent but that doesn't mean that they connect to the world in any way yeah they could be coherent and and have no correspondence at all yeah i mean there's people who think that the world we're living in is a computer simulation yeah yeah well if that's i mean i don't agree with them yeah but that's a coherent idea so well, yeah, I, I try to apply uh, an EAAN against that idea, uh, but yeah. Well, you could, yeah, you could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, because your your belief forming uh, your your faculties would be aimed at a, a falsity that you live in base reality, not uh, not mm-hmm. the simulated world that you do live in. And so, if you come to believe that your cognitive faculties have been aimed at a falsity and not a truth, 
then you can't believe that you're in a computer simulation because that's a belief produced by your so-called faulty uh, belief forming faculties. That sounded like Hillary Putnam's. Well, this is in the article I wrote on eliminative materialism. Like Hillary Putnam's argue against brain in the vat skepticism. So I, I don't understand Putnam's. And I read your article. I read Putnam's uh, uh, argument. And Putnam, I think this is a little bit before the strong distinction between self defeat and self refutation. Because Putnam Mm -hmm. goes, "There's a self refutation here because our all of our concepts in the brain." Uh, sorry, in the VAT, invadded uh, language does not correspond to uninvaded language yeah. or objects out in reality. And so then we have this picture. And and I think I'm trying to draw out what, what Putnam was arguing, that in the same picture, you have you in a VAT and you not in a VAT, and that's a contradiction. And so it's self-refuting. But I, I want to say, look, I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if Putnam's right or not. But you're certainly it's certainly self-defeating because you believe your cognitive faculties are not aimed at truth. But then you believe this one belief is true, even though it was produced by those faculties. So whether you're living in a computer simulation or not, um, it, it could be true, but it's certainly self-defeating to come to believe that. Yeah, I mean, I would I would think that. I mean, wh- why would you think? Yeah. I mean, if it's a computer simulation, why trust the the programmer? So that, yeah, that's another aspect yeah. to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's good. I'm glad we, we got into that. That was fun. Uh, <laughs> Putnam, Putnam is so smart. I just need to read that paper again and go through. Um, yeah. I kind of had Davidson in my mind when I was uh, reading that and still trying to wrestle through content externalism and whether I, I believe it or not. But so well, well, roughly, um, I, what I would put it is that he's, he's saying that yeah. if I'm a brain in a vat, my concept of vats and brains, for that matter, have nothing to do with the external world of vats and brains. Right. They, there's no connection. Right. So I so I can't have the concept of a vat because there's no connection. So it, it's a causal theory of reference. Since I've never yeah. experienced an actual vat, I've only been you know, so I, it's a, I can't have the concept of a brain in a vat. So the fact that mm-hmm. I do have the concept of a brain in a vat means that I'm not a brain in a vat. Do you, do you think that's a Yeah. Do you think that's self-refuting? Do you think that's a, a actual concept um, there? I'm not See, that's sure. my whole I, mean, I think I know I how, how strong the claim is. Yeah, it's going to be based on how how uh, deeply we accept uh, his causal theory of reference. Right. I mean, if you right. if you don't if you think causal theories of reference have flaws or holes in them that you have to you know yeah. then the argument doesn't work. So that's why I tried to go more uh, planning a route with with um, the truth condition that it has to be aimed at truth. And and if we are in a computer simulation, then all of our faculties are actually aimed at a falsehood, falsity, you know, our intuitions, namely that, hey, I think I live in base reality. Maybe maybe this world is made up of digits or whatever. We find out that the, there's not super strings, but they're digits. But I still think that this world, even if it is digital, is base reality. If I come to find out that this is a this is a, a simulated a simulated world meant to look like base reality, and I've been deceived systematically to think that I live in base reality. I could never come to the belief that I live in a computer simulation without that being self-defeating. Yeah. So I, I, I want to, I want to go with Putnam if I can, if I can reason it through, cause it's stronger claim. Then we get self refutation and self-defeat, which would be great. Yeah. 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 So um, let's go with, with two. So anyone who accepts, who believes naturalism and evolution and sees that uh, the probability of our, of the reliability of our cognitive faculties on N and E are low, uh, they have a defeater 
for the reliability of our cognitive faculties. Um, can you can you flesh that out for us? Uh, because it would affect if the probability that our cognitive faculties are reliable are low, mm-hmm. then that would mean that our belief that there our cognitive faculties are reliable would be defeated as well. Right. So it's not just because if you we have to get into conditionalization there, right? So, I mean, conditioned on this one belief, this low probability, it doesn't necessarily lead to a defeat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's very low in probability that I would be dealt uh, four kings right out of the gate in a game of poker, right? But I'm looking at them. I see them. I have been dealt them. Yeah. So obviously it's, I, it's not going to defeat. The fact that it's so improbable doesn't defeat my belief that I've been dealt four kings. Right. Right. Even so it's improbable. Um, but, uh, with, um, with the evolutionary argument, the problem is that it, uh, it's about the source of beliefs. Yeah. So it calls into question the source of your beliefs. And if you don't have another source for those beliefs, then, um, you don't have any way to shore up the weaknesses. If I could put it that way, shore up the, the, the improbability. So you're just stuck with this improbability and that gives you a defeater. Yes. I love that. Yeah. You have nowhere else to turn. That is the fount of all your beliefs, including that belief. So if that's poisoned, then that belief is poisoned as well. The way I, the way I put it is that, I mean, we get information from all sorts of sources, but what planning a means by cognitive faculties is the cog is those forces that produce beliefs in us where beliefs Mm -hmm. are propositional content, depictor, mental depictors. And so our cognitive faculties are necessarily the source of them insofar as they're the gatekeeper that allows indicators to be transformed into depictors. Yes. Okay. Yes. So they're the gatekeeper. I mean, they're not, it's not the source of information per se. Right. Yeah. Well, but it is the source of our beliefs. Beliefs. Yeah. 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 So the information comes in and I don't want to get all Kantian or anything, but it, our, our, Okay. okay. All right. Well, they, they they package you know things into content propositions into this belief, or you know they're about probably the propositions because I don't know if we have proposition in here, but we have beliefs about propositions. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that the whole manufacturing plant is jacked up, but the manufacturing plant in here is what produced that belief. So that belief is jacked up, and so if that belief is jacked up, you can't believe that, and so then you. Dust, you stop believing that one and you go back to believing that your senses are reliable yeah. or your cognitive faculties. The yeah. factory, yeah. Yeah, Kant's famous jacked up manufacturing fac- factory analogy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the famous yeah. one, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, man. We, we covered some good stuff here. I probably botched it by trying to uh, give the propositional form of E A A N. It's notoriously hard to uh, say that in a podcast. And I'm not fancy enough to put it up on the screen, but I, I think people will have, uh, will have appreciated that. Man, I, I love talking with you about philosophy because you're the kind of philosopher that like, I, I want to be. You just chase down stuff all over the place, and it's really <laughs> fun, man. So I, I love reading your stuff. Uh, like I said earlier before we started recording, I wish we had like 18 hours just to go through it. Um, I mm-hmm. definitely recommend the book. I've read most of it. I've skimmed all of it, but I've read most of it, and uh, it's fantastic, man. I, I appreciate the work you've done. I'm surprised that you put out the first book on it. You know, like, isn't it surprising that someone didn't do this earlier? Uh, it kind of is. I mean, Bealby did, James Bealby, with that edited volume. Right, sure. Uh, this is the first full-length book uh, by a single author on this. Right. Yeah. 
I first want to give context and exposition and repercussions. Unless you include dissertations, which really I think you should because yeah. dissertations are difficult. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Have, have there been dissertations on it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Look, and I have a bibliography of the evolutionary argument against naturalism okay. in the back of the book. I'll check that. And there's a decent number of dissertations. Okay. Uh, most of them deal with it partially, but there's some that are exclusively about it. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's awesome. Uh, okay. So, Jim, if people did want to find you, could they? Mm-hmm. Is there any order to find you? Yeah. Um, I'm at the University of Portland. Um, well, I'm not there. I teach from here. Yeah. Right now, but uh, I'm at University of Portland. Uh, you can email me at slagle at up.edu. Okay, awesome. Yeah, direct all, all your uh, craziness to Jim. Uh, yeah. he, he's the man. Dude, I, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Again, uh, the epistemological skyhook is now in soft cover. That's that's true, right? I mean, you told me that earlier. Yeah, I yeah. Check. Okay. yeah as of uh, right before Christmas, it came, they uh, did it in soft cover. That's so awesome. it's less than 50 bucks now. Let's go. You have to get it then. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I seriously love the book. I read it maybe four times so far. Um, Jeez. You just, it's so good for tracking down other stuff too, you know, cause, cause it's like this compendium of all these different arguments. So, you know, I think I don't want to toot my own horn. People are, are good at different things in philosophy. I think what I'm good at is research and kind of bringing these things. That's why I like you. I'm that's yeah. me. I love that. I want to synthesize, right. I want to pull all this stuff together and then, yeah. My, that's like that's like the addition is like hey i saw this and here you go so yeah. you know my the problem job is, is that you're you're never going to be done and you're never going to be satisfied no, you'll publish something you realize oh there's this entire field of thought that yeah. i didn't know know about there's too that much would, yeah there's it's so you're never done no and some of these people are so happy just being like this is my niche and i will be in this form of this subdiscipline and i'll focus on this the rest of my life and like you guys that's not fair that's not fair. How come I have to think about all of this stuff and I get to stay shallow because I'm a mile, you know, wide and you get to go so deep in your little thing. Well, you know, there's, there's analytic thinking and then there's, um, um, what do you call it? Synthetic or what? What What was the word you used? Synthetic? Synthetic? Not, not synthetic. I mean, there's, there's analytic thinking where you, where you focus on something and focus and you keep following it down. Yeah. And then there's broad thinking where you tend to look at everything yeah. and try to bring it together. Yeah. And um, modern knowledge, is, especially with science, has been really focused on the analytic side. Right, right. And um, you need a little bit of both, but everybody is differently balanced. Some people are really focused on the analytic. Some yeah. people are really focused on the, what's the word? I always forget you're the word. Continental. You're not saying continental, are Not you? continental, no. <laughs> I mean, just just bringing all the knowledge together, being a co- a, a, a systematic thing. Yeah, idea. systematic Big picture, yeah. I don't um, know the word. So you need need a little bit of both. Yeah. Our our modern era is focusing primarily on that, but everybody has a little bit of of that. And I guess I'm just more on that uh, bring everything together side. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. just yeah. So I mean, I think I'm not bad at the analysis that I do. It's just that I only want to analyze the things that I bring together. So yeah. Well, and your work on on self defeat and. Um, uh, self-refutation has been really helpful too, and I, I think that's something that you've you've added uh, at least clarity to the field, if not if not more. Um, is there anything? Are you are you like taking a break now that you wrote this giant book on the EAAN, or, or are you working on something else right now? Well, actually, last summer I just wrote down. I have uh, for the classes I teach. I have um, 
outlines, like a hundred, like 100 page outlines for all my classes. Dang. And I just decided to write out my science and religion class in a book. And so I, I wrote that out. And it, the problem is it's really, it's not publishable because it's really obnoxious. Okay. I mean, I'm just constantly making, every time I refer to something like geocentrism yeah. from the Latin geo meaning stupid and centrism meaning my bunions hurt, you know, like things like this, just yeah. all throughout it. I'm just, I'm just being silly. Yeah. Is that because so that's you taste those before I could even publish it? Yeah. Is that, is that because you're, you're teacher students and you, you toss in jokes and stuff like that or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I love that. The first I, time I mentioned Aristotle, I have a footnote that says rhymes with Chipotle, you know, things like this. Yeah. <laughs> <crazy>. um, <laughs> I love that. Well, I do too, but I mean, it's not something I'd, I'd have to be more serious about it. And, that's what, um, sad thing but but you you're able to be a little bit silly in at least in the epistemological skyhook and a little bit in that eaa handbook um yeah i got it breaks out yeah i can't help it you you shouldn't yeah you you i I have to let my obnoxiousness roam free to some level that's right i love it i'm a kindred spirit with you there um yeah well uh this was a a super fun episode man i uh we got to do more we got to talk about your bench press sometime um because that's ridiculous <laughs> so do you can you toss that out do you feel confident telling us that what's your yeah. best, your, your your best ever oh uh i don't i mean i i used to work out in my late teens and 20s but i stopped because i i have a adult onset um exercise induced asthma Jeez. okay huh. so it, it just let me to i just kind of started spreading out because i couldn't exercise as much anymore yeah um, and uh, my wife and I went to do a study at, uh, in a hospital, like a, a, a university study yeah. that had couples doing some exercises and see how it affects them and all this. And the and it, it was right before the um, the epidemic broke out, and so it ended up not going anywhere. Mm. But they had to say they they had us do just uh, bench presses and leg presses, and it was it wasn't free weights. Okay, it was it was machines. Mm. And uh, the the chest the the uh, bench press went up to three hundred, and I I pushed up three hundred, <laughs> and so they added more weight on it. I think another twenty five pounds of free weights. They balanced on it, and they just said, "Do as many as you can." And I did four or five. It's insane, man! I'm so jealous of that. Yeah, I love. I that. haven't exercised. I haven't done bench presses in twenty five years, so it's like. Well, you know, maybe that's the key. Maybe if I stop now and I check back in like twenty twenty years or whatever like that, we'll we'll be set. Eat more fried food. That's the secret to getting it. Yeah, that's great. That's um, awesome. The leg press, though, I I, I never, because I I never did legs. I didn't skip leg day. I just never had leg day because I was I was happy with how strong my legs were. Okay. Right. And then the leg press, I was like, well, I'd never exercise my legs, so this is going to be terrible. That went up to five hundred. I maxed that out. Just a beast, man. I put twenty five pounds on it, and I did twelve reps, and they said, okay, just stop, just stop. <laughs> that's that's a sign though that's you know why don't, why don't you take that as like an information download of like get back into it man. let's go yeah well you yeah. wouldn't you wouldn't think this to look at me you'd think you'd, you'd think he's a slightly scary big fat turd you know that's that's what you'd see if you looked at me i don't know you got the kingpin vibe going on for me like, <laughs> that's good yeah. well All i'd right. rather be bald than balding i guess yeah, so, yeah. yeah. look um <laughs> All right. Well, so you you got to come back on. We'll talk some more. Um, for now, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. <laughs> <laughs>